Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive, I'm, uh, I'm really glad to be sitting here today with Glenn Aparicio Parry, PhD. Also given the name Kitse Nabe, Ojibwe for kind-hearted man. He is a writer, educator, international speaker, entrepreneur and visionary whose lifelong passion is to reform thinking and education into a coherent, cohesive role. He is the founder and past president of the SEED Institute. Perry is currently the president of the think tank, the Circle for Original Thinking. I could say a lot more about him, and uh, uh, Glenn, if you want to add some things about yourself, that would be good. But I don't want to go on too long with this introduction. I'd rather give time for us to do some original thinking together. So, Sounds good. <laughs> so I'm holding his book, Original Thinking, in my hand, A Radical Revisioning of Time, Humanity, and Nature. So welcome. Ah, thank you. What a joy to be with you. So who are you, kind-hearted man? <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. Um, well, I, I prefer just to go right into whatever we're going to talk about rather than talking about myself. But I guess I, when at the conclusion of writing Original Thinking, I realized Maybe the best word might be eco-psychologist. You know, I came to uh, writing the book, Original Thinking. I was going to write the book originally as original education. And then I really just kept looking deeper and deeper into where the roots of education were. And I really, it amounted to our thoughts. And, and our thoughts, uh, you know, then I would look at the roots of our thoughts, and our thoughts are in nature. They come from nature. They come from places. And so, yeah, that's probably the, the, the best single description of maybe what I'm doing is eco-psychology, okay. which is not a well-known um, expression outside of places like Santa Fe, where everybody knows what eco-psychology is in Santa Fe, but perhaps. But, but you know, and, and now there's, there's actually academic programs in eco-psychology at places like Naropa, and I think California Institute of Integral Studies, where I went to, has that now. But, um, yeah, uh, but it's very simple. I mean, just remembering that our thoughts actually come from nature, you know, um, that's what we forgot. And we went off into this uh, unusual, weird path where we began to imagine that inside our your head you had your thoughts and inside my head I had my thoughts and 
really, of course, it's a field. We're sharing a field like we, we get to enjoy right now. That's it. So how can we think in a way that, uh, for me, I would qualify as more loving, but actually it's a way of not being separate inside myself. How can we open those doors to the field? That's a good, you know, what I um, try to do is just remember that, you know, if uh, I couldn't be breathing at all if it weren't for the trees that are giving out the, the sacred breath that we're giving back to them in a, in a circle. They're giving out oxygen. We're giving out CO2. You know, we're connected. You know, and that tree couldn't be growing without the light and the air and the water and the earth being rooted in the earth. So all the elements are connected. They're all within us. This is the way the ancients thought. But you asked about heart. You asked about heart. So I remember um, I did write about this in in the book, Original Thinking. But when I was in Costa Rica, uh, I had organized this tour that was um, it was uh, ostensibly to swim with dolphins, which turned out to be actually a joke in Costa Rica, because the the dolphins in Costa Rica had been netted. They were being netted by humans, so they really didn't want to have anything to do with humans. <laughs> so they were they were swimming. If you call swimming with dolphins, you know, watching dolphins swim by at a very high speed, <laughs> that would be swimming with dolphins. But still. There was some kind of communication. We had done other tours. I had organized other tours where it was very different, you know, swimming with dolphins in Hawaii where the dolphins were really uh, used to humans swimming with them. And they really, um, they did it on their terms. Because I remember one time when the weather was really rough, they just, dolphins dove down until we decided to go back in the boat. And that the weather was, as soon as we got back in the boat, the dolphins came out. They were telling us, don't don't be out there then. Um, But anyway, in Costa Rica, it was very beautiful. And it's particularly the Oso Peninsula that I really loved when we went hiking in the rainforest. Um, And it was there that I had a dream. A vision. It was really more vision than a dream. But and I saw my wife's smiling face, actually. And then I I dove deep into the water. But when I say I, it's kind of not really I. A dolphin. Dolphin dove deep down into the ocean. And the dolphin kept diving all the way toward the bottom of the ocean until the the dolphin was just before the bottom and realized, hey, I'm a river dolphin. And the dolphin came back up and came back up, up to the surface. And then there was a consciousness that uh, grew out of the dolphin and up into the sky. And consciousness is looking down on the dolphin, swimming back toward the mouth of the river. And then it expands further, so there are actually many, many rivers that are converging into the ocean. And then uh, the sound of the heartbeat of Mother Earth came. Ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. It was very, very powerful and very ecstatic, you know. And that's when I had 
you know, a realization that this is, this is it. This is the heart, you know. And uh, I came back uh, from Costa Rica and I was talking with uh, a dear elder uh, mentor, you know, grandfather Leon Secatero, who's now in the spirit world, but very active in the spirit world since uh, 2008. Um, and when I say active, I mean he communicates with so many people. Mm-hmm. But um, and Grandfather Leon said, "That's good. That was a good vision, Glenn, because you know the reason why there's cardiovascular trouble on this planet is because we have been damming the rivers of Mother Earth. The so the rivers are the ventricles of Mother Earth." And when we dam those rivers, we're cutting off the circulation. So what I, what I felt, what I experienced, was real. You know, it's 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 a real vision, and so I think that is that can help us remember what you were asking about. Mm-hmm. That our heart is water. Mm. Our heart is water. Our heart is not a muscle only. It is not a machine. It is really the heart of our body is connected to the heart of nature. And the rhythms of nature are connected to our rhythms. And if we live that way, we're actually just so much happier. So you have opened up here with so much heart that I'm going to ask you what is the crucial question for me at this time. And especially that you've written this book, Original Thinking. It's had a Nautilus Award, and it's it's a very beautiful dive into... You know, I want to say clean thinking, and that's not doing it justice at all. But what I mean by clean thinking is that it's it's a it's a very a very sincere plunge into inclus- inclusive living, inclusive being, and and now you sent me the preface to the next book. Uh, Mm. You uh, you are in the process of, and so my big question is, what do you have to say for yourself at this time, in this political system, you white middle-aged man? What have you discovered that gives a life to that particular? state of being wow that's a big yeah lot of question i understand i understand um well first of all i want to answer the question but i want to back up just to say that you know the the book original thinking emerged out of beautiful dialogue circles um that were conducted uh, uh moderated by leroy little bear i was blessed to be the director of the seed institute when we held these and we brought together native elders and western scientists in this in this in the sacred field and there was there was so much that came out of it that was deeply meaningful to me uh that i give my my wife credit actually is my my wife tomoko is the one who said to me 
Glenn, you love dialogue so deeply in your bones. If you're going to write about some of the experiences you had through dialogue, well, then why don't you ask questions? Why don't you ask questions and then answer the questions? Because that's what happens in a dialogue circle. We ask a kickstart question. And the very first question Leroy Little Bear ever asked in 1999 was, is it possible to, to come up with an original thought? So that's how the book, Original Thinking, started. And then the second question I asked, which Spirit wanted me to ask, was, what does it mean to be human? And the third question that I asked, which was part three of the book, is, you know, uh, how is our thinking creating the world and what is now emerging? And, and the fourth question was about education. You know, if educa- how can education recover uh, original thinking? Um, so... You know, that, is, that book was a, a tribute to that experiences that I had. It also brought in all life experience I had. Um, so it was a beautiful, beautiful thing for me to do. Not easy, by the way. I mean, to answer a question is one thing. But then, you know, to ask, answer other questions and then integrate it so it has a flow together was a challenge. But um, so now I wanted to embark upon uh, what's moving me now, what you brought up it really is um, in the political arena. You know, original thinking was more philosophy, but I wanted to ground this philosophy now in what's happening, the actions in the, in the, in the world. And that's really what politics is. Um, politics, the etymology of politics, does not come from many parasites. No, even though you might think so. <laughs> no, it, it came from it came from the city, or many blood sucking parasites. Some people say, you know, but probably. But anyway, that's not true. Um, it, it has to do with the city, the polis, um, and it's usually ground up in human interactions between other humans. Although we shouldn't limit it to that. Well, we have the white middle aged man here. Oh, the and white middle aged man. And I know, I they know you that can. Way. No, I know you don't. That's yeah. why. I'm, that's why I'm saying that yeah, is uh, what can you offer from from that perspective? And the meeting on the train, for instance, uh, is a fantastic okay, okay, example. Okay, well, well, okay, okay, okay. Well, all right. I should say. Look, I realize that if people meet me, they're going to say white middle-aged man. Okay, I'm just but I but I should you know. But that's all right. I don't mind being provoked. Um, it's fun. Um, I am you know on my grandmother's side. I'm Basque. You know, from the High Pyrenees in Spain. Okay. On my grand, on my grandfather's side, I'm Aragon Spanish. On my mother's side, I'm Jewish. So I'm tribal, actually. You know, but uh, and that's the way I tend to identify uh, uh, with. Uh, however, you know, in this world, you know, I am going to be seen as, like you said, white middle-aged man. So what do you do with that? Um, yeah. Well, I uh, one of the, I guess the. Um, um, one of the learnings for people in the world who are white middle-aged men is to even be aware of that, you know, because uh, 
uh, one of the trappings of privilege is to not have to think about that. You know, so so people who are people of color, uh, or there, or if you're a woman, you're going to be uh, reminded of this constantly. Um, where the white middle-aged man, you know, might slip under the radar or did for a long time um, as just the given. You know, so this is what the kind of thing like Simone de Beauvoir was writing about when she wrote *The Second Sex*. That you know that. The women were the second sex because the man was just understood to be, you know, that's that's human. Okay, then we have the 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 human man joined by woman, you know, which is kind of in the biblical tale. So you can go to Albuquerque now; they're doing a funny uh, play called Oi, and they turn it around, and uh, uh, God or goddess is first. Uh, uh, the the man comes second. Anyway, we we straight we go astray. You. We, we want to know me. You. Me. Why? Why? Why do this now? Because this culture right now is heavily polarized, and um, I believe in. Um, you say uh, there's that, a the, verbal civil war going on. There's a verbal civil war. I believe in the sanctity and the, and the, and the uh, integrity of all beings, uh, other than human, but also human beings. Um, most of my friends, most of my upbringing are uh, liberals. They would identify themselves usually as liberal progressives, you know. Um, I would never use the word progressive because, as I wrote about in original thinking, I don't even believe in progress. You know, so so, uh, and I think that is a shadow side. I mean, you know, the coming from the Enlightenment um, in the West, we began to think that we could figure things out, and once we figured things out, then we could uh, mold the world the way we want to mold the world. So that's really the shadow side of liberal progressives. This is a very, very old argument going back to Thomas Paine and Edmund Burke. You know, so Thomas Paine, everybody knows about Thomas Paine, Tom Paine, you know, and he, he, he was a beautiful writer who helped foment the American Revolution, you know. Um, and he was, you know, he was brought over by Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin um, um, was his mentor. Uh, ben Franklin hung out with Native Americans. Uh, in fact, Ben Franklin had significant dealings as Indian commissioner, particularly with the Iroquois um, and with uh, Chief Conestego, such that, you know, one of the reasons I'm writing the new book is because I want to show how the Native American spirit actually founded this country um, and still is working through this country. Um, And that spirit was a beautiful, inclusive spirit of liberty and justice. So here's the thing. People think that Tom Paine and, and, and Jefferson and these writers and founders Ben Franklin, whatever, they seem to imagine that they came up with this idea for this country out of the blue. They didn't. They came up with the idea by watching Native American living culture right then. 
And, and, and first of all, you know, I mean, uh, the settlers were interacting for 100 years before they're ever, you know, or more than 100 years before we ever formed the country. So it was already the land was already somewhat infused in the spirit. But it really was about an egalitarian culture. Now, mind you, the founders only took what they wanted. For instance, they ignored the powerful role of women, mm-hmm. women in in uh, Iroquois Confederacy. We do have now, and I'm sure you're very aware of it because you'll probably be happy when if if and when Trump is impeached. But <laughs> but but uh, uh, but that came from the Iroquois as well. But because uh, the women's council, the women's council appointed the head of the of the male chief, and they had the right to remove him if he screwed up. Um, so, uh, so we kept the the idea of impeachment, but we just didn't delegate it to the women's council. Um, the idea of women forming first in a wisdom council that then inform men is in a many tribes, um, and with good reason. I think it's actually a good a good joining of women's wisdom and men doing action in the world that can be an effective partnership. But, any, but you know, let me just say this. I mean, probably many listeners may not realize this, but the, uh, uh, when Ben Franklin was hanging out with the Iroquois, and particularly Chief Conestego, um, it was Chief Conestego who told Ben Franklin that you colonists got to get your act Together, literally, you need to work together. Your 13 colonies are all on their own, doing their own thing. You need to watch what we do because the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, which by most dates started as, actually, I could prove to you, but I'm not going to do it here. It's as old as 1132. It's very, very ancient. It was around for, you know, 500 years, more than 500 years before Ben Franklin was interacting with them. Mm-hmm. So their confederacy, which then was at the time of Ben Franklin, was five nations, you know, the Onondaga, Cayuga, you know, uh, you know, et cetera, um, uh, is now six nations. But they they worked together they had a central government and they also distributed power to the tribes in their individual territories this was adopted later by the united states for our concept of federalism our balance of power between the states and the federal government but it goes even more than that you know we adopted our very symbol our very symbol with the eagle you know you see in a dollar bill with the eagle holding in its talons 13 arrows well the the iroquois confederacy symbol was the eagle holding in its talons five arrows ah. for the five for the five nations. Yes. So we really took that wholesale. And, and uh, you know, it's a very powerful symbol. And it works, actually. I think it's really a good idea. Sorry, there's a lot of passion. I could no, speak about this. The, Sorry. The passion is very important. And uh, that's exactly what I meant by white middle-aged man. <laughs> What I mean by that is, is there has to be a counterpart to Trump and his cabinet, and it's you and others like you uh, that, can, that can bring the wisdom of your lives 
to facing up to what is going on now. So if, if, if in fact, and I see it that way too, we are in a verbal civil war, how can we begin to have a dialogue? And that's what touched me so much about your the preface you sent me yesterday. Ah, okay. Well, I could talk to you about the preface then, because, you know, that comes out of a real-life experience. Yeah. I got invited to a um, to do a conference in, uh, in Illinois um, in this past summer by my dear friend Susan Stanton, who is Six Nations person herself, and was organizing a conference with archaeologists and Native Americans, and for some reason she was led by spirit to invite me. Because um, I'm not an archaeologist, you know, but uh, other maybe I'm an archaeologist of the mind. That's yes. a, okay. Thank you. But uh, and she also she invited me and she recommended I come by Amtrak because their place in Illinois was just over the river from you know Fort Madison, Iowa, or something. And she said I could get there by Amtrak, um, and and she did it all the time. And I did it once in my life. I had gone across the entire country by Amtrak. And it is sort of a step out of time. And because I don't really, I like that. I like going back in time. And that's what it felt like when I got on this train. I felt like I was Abraham Lincoln going back to, uh, going to Washington, D.C. for the first time or something. It goes so slow, Amtrak. And Amtrak doesn't even own, you may know this, they don't even own their own train line. So if a freight train comes up, you know, they might have to sit there for two hours you know, or something. So if you're in a rush, you don't want to go on Amtrak, you know. But if you are not in a rush, it can be great. Um, and especially because I was traveling alone at meal times. Uh, Amtrak would, I don't know, for some reason they made me make a reservation. I'm not sure why, but they made me make a reservation because they had to, you know, they wanted to book everybody. And then they, and then they, uh, there's only so much space in the dining car, so they have a reason. But then they put me together with, with uh, other people. And sometimes it was with a couple, you know, who were already traveling together. But the most delicious times were when it was with just random stray solo travelers like myself. You know, so so one time I, I got together with, uh, um, this was the best one, you know, I got together with a guy, he actually, from Albuquerque, um, I, I don't remember his name, so I, I don't think he'll, he may remember this if he's listening, but uh, um, I'm just going to call him James. Okay, so he, and he's a, a gay black uh, 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 poet, and he's from Albuquerque. Um, and then, uh, and then we got together with a um, turned out to be a Trump supporter. I met many Trump supporters on this trip, which I don't have an opportunity normally to interact with much, you know. So, um, and uh, and he was a businessman who had his own airplane business in Wichita, Kansas, um, originally from Lawrence, Kansas. And then, uh, and then there was a, a Native American, and uh, and we all were, you know, we all got to eat together. And here's the, I realized, man, this is some opportunity because, normally speaking, this just doesn't happen in the regular world. 
because uh, we have our, you know, we what I call it, I think we have an unconscious, uh, uh, we quickly assess unconsciously or just by using certain words or, or it's like a secret code. We can find out whether you're liberal, conservative, you know, and, yeah. and then if it's not what we believe in, we tend to walk away. Uh, when I say we, I'm just talking in general, most people. I don't really like to do that myself. I, I like to engage. Um, but so we... We were there all together, and I thought, hey, I, I'm going to turn this into a little dialogue circle, you know, if I can. And I ask, you know, what is the sacred purpose of America? And, and, uh, and, and that was the question I threw out, and, and it was pretty interesting what happened. It was very interesting what happened. And by the end of that dinner people were actually getting along really well, even though they couldn't have been more different. They couldn't have been more different. I mean, this, this, this gay black poet talking with the... With the uh, he was really... He thought Bernie Sanders was too far to the right, right? You know, and then, then, you know, and then you have, you know, the Trump supporter and the Native American who gave the most wisdom, really. Um, and it's out of that that I realized that you know, I want to write a book that's healing, a book that, that brings people together and that they can listen to the other point of view. And I do think that uh, we're in a special time. To answer your question originally more, um, I, maybe it's because I've, I've learned from Native elders that everything that happens is a blessing, but I'm trying to look at Trump as a blessing. I know that's hard. But you don't, don't don't make that face. No. <laughs> but but here's the thing: he's a blessing because um, he is going to, and this his supporter said, but I'm saying too, he is shaking everything up. He is he is destroying all the all the normal conventions, all the the actual the way the world worked together in an inter- interconnected web is now being undone, um, and. Um, it is like in a shamanic initiation, you know, it's like, um, um, and you know, you can certainly relate to this, Joanna, like taking, you know, a LSD the first hour. So the, your, your world is going to be totally torn apart. Yes. It's, it's going to be, but out of that, something else can emerge out of that. Hopefully we will get to a deeper understanding of what's really important out of that we will hopefully remember our sacred purpose. And so um, even though I have my own fears about, you know, possible nuclear annihilation, um, and there are real consequences to, to, to running government in a disjointed um, uh, way, and we may be coming into, in fact, I do think we are in the middle of a potential fascist coup. Um, all those things are real, but there is, believe it or not, um, a possible good outcome from this, and it will be the original meaning of the word apocalypse, which is an unveiling or revelation. So, yes, it's apocalyptic times. But out of that, we're going to get to the real, real truth, the real core, hopefully, of what America needs to be. Is there a sacred purpose to America? And 
if there is, what is it? Ah, well, that's what... <laughs> I don't know if I can fully answer that yet. That's why I'm writing the book, but, but thank you for asking it. Um, I would say there is a sacred purpose to America, and I do think it is about um, the, the meeting, the conference between all the world's peoples happening on this soil. And for, so its sacred purpose is to discover and remember inclusion and unity and diversity. I think in their own way, Native American cultures understood that, but I don't want to over-romanticize Native American cultures, you know, because um, every tribe had some kind of word that, you know, in Japanese, there's a word gaijin, which means foreigner, outsider. You know, um, most Native American tribes, like the Cherokee or the Navajo, or the, the word for the tribe was equivalent to the people. So the, those that were not in the tribe were, were uh, considered outside the people. Um, they were sometimes thought of as cannibals, um, and which was either... Um, mythic, perhaps, or real, <laughs> but they were a threat. But the thing about Native American stories about cannibals is that they almost always welcome the cannibals with kindness and generosity. Now, it was partly a strategy. It was partly a strategy to to transform the cannibal. But I think it's a better strategy than just immediately your knee-jerk reaction being to go to war. Um, and that was the strategy that Native America used when the Europeans came, too. They welcomed them with kindness. You can see that in all the European accounts. Um, and they did that, and it worked. People don't realize how well it worked for a very long time. It worked until there were just too many numbers of Europeans coming in, then it stopped working. But for a long time it worked, and more Europeans became Indian. <laughs> when, they, when they got a chance to go in Indian society, they liked it. They didn't tend to go back as much, which didn't happen in reverse. So even though we tend to think that colonizers, they're the ones who made all the changes. It's one that, it didn't happen that way. The Indians had a big effect on this country. That's what made America unique. That's what made America not like Europe. Europe was coming out of monarchies. They were they were a very a feudal, you know, um, society that that just of the haves and the have-nots. To some degree, we became a more egalitarian experiment. And that's why it's so sad that now we've slipped, you know, um, into closer to an oligarchy. Um, and that's what the, the purpose we have to rediscover is this, this uh, egalitarian, open, inclusive world again. Do you think there is a... And I'll use that word. Do you think there's a spiritual reason that some of us, uh, some of us in this generation, have been attracted from all over the planet 
to come here to one of the sources of Native American life. Ah, so you're talking about Santa Fe and New Mexico. Well, I'm talking, and, yeah, yeah, New Mexico. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, New Mexico. Yeah. When people ask me why I moved to New Mexico, I usually tell them it's like that movie Close Encounters, you know, where the where the uh, guy just builds the Richard Dreyfus just builds the mashed potatoes on his yeah. plate and he yeah. turns to his children and says you may have noticed something strange about daddy lately <laughs> you know it's a great scene you know and and, and 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 it's really these people in close encounters they just got attracted to come to that place yeah. Yeah. I felt that about New Mexico yeah. so I could give you logical reasons but they don't make that's not the real reason I just was attracted to come here just like you were Oh, yeah. yeah. But is it in coming here that is it in part because you came here that you can say something in your book, a sentence in your book that has uh, interested me a lot? Does the perception of space and time change as consciousness evolves? Hmm. Perception of space, space and, and time. time. Does it change as consciousness evolves? Yes, it does. You, you say that. So, what yes, is your experience well, of that? Well, um, I could answer that on a couple of levels. So, time is one of the most fascinating concepts to me. And I really, uh, a lot of the reason why I wrote Original Thinking was to revision the concept of time because I felt that where Western culture had gone astray was over the concept of time, where we had begun to believe in time as an abstraction, just total abstraction. It's time something outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And this, this happened during the Renaissance with the, with the uh, invention of linear perspective in art. So that's when we flip our consciousness. And it used to be that, you know, it happened in da Vinci's lifetime. And when da Vinci was young... Everybody understood, including da Vinci, that the natures had the energies. The energy flowed from nature to us. But when we turn it around and we begin to believe that the real thing is linear perspective and that we, our I, looking out on the world, is animating the world, that's how we began to think of time as a line. So the linear perspective is about line. It's about time as a line. So the things that are closer to us are what we think of as happening in the near future. We even have the phrase that says the distant future. That comes from linear perspective. So things that are in the, in the, off in the distance are what we think of as the distant future. So we're now orienting ourselves as a line. We didn't used to do that. So the ancient Greeks thought of as the past as ahead of them the future was behind them and it really makes a lot of sense if you just play with it you know so the the past was ahead of them because it had already manifested where they had eyes to see it the future was behind them because they had the wisdom to understand that the future was not knowable that's why they would go to an oracle to get 
a future reading. They considered it hubris to try to predict the future. But, but we turned that all around. We made the future in front of us. And as soon as we did that, we began our pathway, which I'm not trying to say it's wrong, but it has consequences. Our pathway then became to about prediction and control of the future. So our consciousness was built around time. The whole Western paradigm of science is built around time as a line until we got to you know einstein and einstein you would think threw that all out but it really hasn't penetrated the average consciousness yet you know um and uh, uh, we still operate on a newtonian concept of time you know and that's that's a problem that's a problem. So that that affects your consciousness. It's kind of a roundabout way of answering your question, but it's good. All right. Because I had this image of uh, Descartes and Einstein having a boxing match. <laughs> They're in the ring with each other, and, uh, and Einstein is going timeless. <laughs> Descartes is going timeline. <laughs> well, here's here's a little piece of trivia that I didn't find out till after I wrote this book, Original Thinking. But the whole invention of a timeline, you know how old that is? Talking about putting it on a timeline. It's yeah, only I, 250 years old. No. Yes. <laughs> so we we survived perfectly perfectly well without timelines yeah. until 250 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We just you know it, it really is not. Now it oh. seems now now this is how we measure history. You know, we go to school and they oh. give you a timeline and they and they say you know the War of 1812 and then they say the Civil War 1860 and they may may not cover anything else in between. So it's as if Nothing happened. That <laughs> oh, that can probably uh, that and the invention of childhood probably came at the same time. Of childhood, yeah. Uh, no, there was no notion of of childhood. Uh, I forget you. the name of the person who writes about that very beautifully, because uh, I discovered this about twenty some years ago. Um, until uh, until the 17th century, I think, or uh, there, w- there was no notion of childhood. Children were people. And I guess this goes together with the idea that if there's no timeline, there's no childhood, adulthood, middle-agehood, mm. and so on. That would be really interesting to investigate, and I'm, I'm very sure... That that childhood is an invention in the last 200 years. That makes sense. That makes sense because the whole concept of periods of time is a modern twist. So uh, and and uh, so the very word period is really its original meaning is similar to in a menstrual cycle. It's about a circle. Yeah. It's about a circle. So period is a circle. It's a cycle of time, um, and it's not you know. And so when did the period become literally the dot at the end of a sentence or and the can, div- go ahead? Sorry, 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 but and come, come, come. Then then there wouldn't be. A notion that Alzheimer's is something unnatural in the circle. You would be in diapers. You'd go back to diapers, and right. uh, uh, you would you would well, learn to talk, and you'd forget how to talk in the way right. that you learned to talk. 
I agree with you. I think life is a circle. It's merciful. It's a circle. And that's why, um, you know, uh, grandparents and, and children have such a close bond. They're both coming back to a different way of seeing or, or, or a similar way of seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. I have a, 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 something I would like to hear from you and... Um, I have never studied linguistics, and you speak about this in your book. I have never studied linguistics, but I've always had the intuition. I speak five languages, and so we I could we could have a wonderful discussion about that. But so I've asked myself enormously, where does language come from? How do, was language created? And uh, I've come to the place where I think that. Uh, without studying or reading anybody, that language has come from our relationship with the um, the environment in which we grew up, in that we came into, and also from a desi- from a place where we could no longer just express our emotions, connect with the other person emotionally only with grunts and movements and so out of out of this desire to connect we I, I began to utter the words so that it's sort of a love affair it's said that language is a love affair with the land and with the beings that we share our lives with and but I'd like to ask this as a question to you. Mm. Mm. What is language and where did it come from and what do you think? Because it ties in with original thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I agree with you. I think language, language, every, you know, uh, language comes from the land. You know, it may also come through the environment of your family and whatnot and what you were. But originally it came from the land, you know. So there, there's it's not a coincidence that the places with the greatest biodiversity are also the places with the greatest linguistic diversity because there's everything speaking, everything speaking. So if you go in a rainforest, it's full of language and you feel that in your gut. Um, and so that, those are the places on the planet that are the most polyglot. Those are the places where we've got a lot of language going on. So when we cut down a rainforest, we're also cutting down lang- human languages, which is, which is pretty, pretty sad. And, and we're, and we're cutting down all kinds of languages from the critters. Um, so I completely agree with you. And I think, and there's an organization that I, I, I like very much called Terra Lingua. And they're, they're, that's what their work is about. They're looking at the relationship between uh, linguistic diversity and biodiversity and seeking to preserve both. Yeah. Can you come up with a word in the English, English language that represents for you the closest love affair between uh, land and human? Hmm. Uh, well, um, I don't know if I can come up with one. I mean, E.O. Wilson came up with uh, uh, biophilia, 
Right. You know, I mean, that's, a, you know, the love of, of Mother Earth and all her critters, you know. So what you're, yeah, I, do, I don't think I can beat that one. That's good. <laughs> as, I, as I asked the question, I came up with one. Oh, good. And the word that, that popped in was poignant. Poignant. It's an inhale and an exhale. And it's my favorite word, but if you... Oh. Poignant. And that's a French word, isn't poignant. it, originally? Poignant. Yeah. yeah, 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 it feels French. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah which is yeah. the language I went to school in. Right, and it's, 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 it's a poignant language and a poignant culture, right, that yeah. just likes to dig deep into... Poignant. <laughs> <laughs> So we we could, could go on and and we might decide to do more of these dialogues. I mean, sure. I would be really attracted by. I'm very attracted by that idea. So, but we've come to the time where I want to ask you to uh, take a moment and um, think about what you would like to say. Mm. Hmm. Well, you said think, and in original thinking, I, on I don't know what page, but at one place I said that the most important thing in this book, if um, if you re, if you re, if you don't remember anything else from this book, remember this, and that is the origin of thinking is thanking. And so that's that's the way the very word thinking came into English, but not just English, into into French, German, Dutch, uh, Norse, Frisian, you know, uh, uh, Old Saxon, uh, many other languages. Probably I'm not aware of. Um, there's a relationship between thinking and thanking. The relationship between thinking and giving thanks. And I really wanted to. I contemplated that for a long time. Why would that be? Mm-hmm. And finally, I realized that in our origins, we were just filled with gratitude. We were filled mm-hmm. with connection. Mm-hmm. We knew in our bones that life was a blessing. Um, and so if we could thank before thinking You know, people say, you know, think before speaking. Well, how about thanking before thinking? And then thinking before speaking. And then, you know, we can restructure our lives to be coming from a place of blessing, coming from a place of wholeness. Then I think we would live more peacefully, more harmoniously with with other people. And with all the critters on this planet. And that's a beautiful thing. Thank you, dear friend. Thank you. 